Yes. Hi, welcome to A Drink to the Past. We already failed the theme song, so... Drink. I'm your host, uh, Sean Michael Patrick Thompson, as always, and this is my co-host, Chris... Uh, Chris. Something, something, something. All right. There we go. Cool. I got the New Zealand Pilsner from Lumpy Ridge Brewing Company today. Uh, They're up in Estes Park. I had them on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I got a fancy koozie, which I'm made out of leather. I think it says ooh-wee koozie, which is a strange thing for a koozie to say. Alright, and today on Sean Drinks Something Stupid, it's just vodka. Because I'm tired uh, of being interesting. I mean, it's, it's very interesting vodka. And I've got these official statesman whiskey stones. It's like Kingsman, but from the states. Get it? I found these at my parents' basement, and I was like, sweet, whiskey stones, I'm stealing them. Why are they in the basement and not the freezer? How many collections of whiskey stones do you have now? Now two. I I had just one, uh, but now I've got two, because one of them's officially licensed Kingsman whiskey stones, which are probably just as good as any other whiskey stones. I guess we'll find out. And I got one of my cool beer flask glasses here uh, from the 35th annual Great American Beer Festival back in 2016, so hopefully there will be another beer fest this year. That'll be great. Uh, This kind of vodka is really cool. Uh, Reka is an Icelandic vodka, and it's filtered through lava rocks. I have no idea if that actually makes a difference on, like, the efficacy of the filtration, but it sounds way more metal. Yeah. Yeah. So, here's to vodka. Mmm... Vodka. Good stuff. All right. Turning potatoes into liquor. Proving potatoes as one of the more versatile vegetables. Yep. Pretty much. Never saw corn turn into liquor. Oh, wait. I mean, lettuce. Lettuce never turned into liquor. That's my new life's goal. I'm going to make alcohol out of lettuce. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm far too lazy. Anyways, uh... <laughs> You probably couldn't tell from that introduction, but we're a gaming podcast and stuff. So, uh, well, first, Chris, Both what you Tabletop drinking? and video games. Yeah. Uh, I'm drinking a good old classic, Vanilla Porter by Breckenridge Brewery. Do you buy other uh, beers? I mean, I've got, I've got a variety pack in there. I just have been too lazy to break <laughs> into it. Nice. All like, right. I like, like my porters and I like my stouts. That's fair. Stouts and porters are generally my go-tos. This Pilsner is okay. Um... Yeah, very clean, kind of almost lagerish, but not like overly so. Kind of hmm, hard to put a pin on, and kind of an aftertaste, but hmm. not sure what that is. It's familiar, but unclear. Anyway, so that's not bad. Yeah, I'll give it that a uh, eleven. It's fine, fine beer. Mm, anyways, uh, let's get into what you're playing. So, Chris, what you been playing this week? I've been playing more Unrailed and more Dead by Daylight. Cool. That always uh, helps, right? Yeah. Not, not a whole lot new for me. Uh, right. I've been doing everything new, except not all that much. Um, I did, uh, like I said, I've been playing the Halo Master Chief Collection, so I played um, some... I played all the way through Halo 1, and I was just playing the first few missions of Halo 2, 
as well. So I think I'm like halfway through Halo 2 because it's annoyingly short, uh, which like is kind of saying something for a shooter, right? Shooters are not generally very long in the campaigns, but Halo 2 I remember being specifically really, really short. It's even specifically shorter. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's kind of interesting to see the... Because these are both the remastered editions for the Master Chief Collection, which is interesting to see, because I've never played any of the remastered editions. Uh, and it's kind of strange, because like I was saying last week, Halo 1 like pretty much just like retextured everything, made it look a little nicer. So it's a, it's a real good upgrade, It's uh, except Captain Keys looked weird as hell. And uh, Halo 2 is like about the same in gameplay, but like all of the cutscenes are like 8 million times better. They are like, seriously look like a modern gen game. I'm like, are you sure this was 2002? It's like, and, and they added a lot of like new cutscenes too, which is kind of interesting that I don't know if they retconned the story, if it's like leading into something that happens in Halo 4 or 5 that I haven't got to yet, uh, but it's kind of foreshadowing something that was not in the original Halo 2. So I'm like, it's kind of strange and interesting. Neat to see. Um, yeah, but other than that, uh, let's see. Uh, I got Clubhouse Games. Um, the 51 tabletop game thing uh, for Switch, which is kind of interesting. It's a great little family game and a great little party game, actually, because it's got like 51 games. Uh, so that's been kind of fun to just play with the kids and you know, play little board games with them and some of the other little games. I'm like, why did they not put this out on the Switch instead of 1-2-Switch at launch? 1-2-Switch? What? what? <laughs> you don't even remember 1-2-Switch. That's how little of an impact it had. I did not pick up uh, Switch at launch. Right. Uh, so, and, but I never, I hadn't, I think that's the first time I've actually heard of that. That Of 1-2-Switch? One two switch. Yeah, it was like a launch game developed by Nintendo, more or less to show off the features of the Switch, basically, through a bunch of mini games, kind of like Nintendo Land did or Wii Sports did for their various. Nintendo Land was pretty great, actually. Um, but yeah, uh, I only played one two switch at my buddy's house one time, and I was like already kind of done with it. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's got motion controls and stuff like other consoles have done this and this console does it better sure but you they didn't really make anything interesting out of it and because it didn't have like it it, it felt devoid of personality in comparison especially coming off of nintendo land which was you know had like a mini game based off of a lot of their famous ips you know you had your little animal crossing mini game and the zelda mini game and metroid and uh, Luigi's Mansion and Pikmin and it's like all of these kind of go together to make it you know obviously stand out more because it's like it feels in some cases almost like you're actually playing one of those games or playing something related to it enough that you're like okay this is kind of cool um, and Wii Sports obviously was big on the me thing and just as a pack-in title kind of became an icon with the system as well because you could just you know buy the system and then have like it was an instant party machine because it came with wii sports but one two switch was not a pack-in and 
I feel like that's 80% of the reason it failed and nobody's heard of it. And but that's not a bad thing, because it wasn't a good game. So, it was attempting to be the Wii Sports or Nintendo Land of its generation, but it missed the point of those, too. Yeah. It also did a pretty good, good job of, of, like, showing you the features of the Switch, like HD Rumble and stuff. Oh, I, I assume. I don't know. I actually never got into any of the Because it doesn't let you pick all the minigames. Uh, and, like, once you can pick the first time you can pick, you can only pick some of them. So I never actually played any of the ones because it's got, like, a minigame where you're, like, holding the Joy-Con and you're trying to like roll it around to see and feel how many balls are inside the little box that is basically the gimmick you see a box on screen and you roll it around by rolling the joy con and guess how many balls are in it which you should theoretically be able to feel with hd rumble and i'm like oh that is sounds kind of cool but i never got to play that one so i have no idea if it worked is this the game with the cow milking and the plate spinning yes okay so i've seen videos of this like very brief videos mm -hmm. i was went what the hell is this? Yeah. And then never thought about it again. So that's what that is. Yes, that is exactly what that is. <laughs> so, anyways, um, what else have I been playing? I've been playing something else. Oh, Last of Us 2. Um, yeah, and that's been going pretty well. Hard to, hard to remember. Uh, not exactly, just I, I Halo is more in my mind because I was literally playing it ten minutes ago. Before we started, I was playing Halo, because I don't like playing The Last of Us while I'm, my kids are not 100% sure to be asleep, because <laughs> if they open their door, they will see my 52-inch TV, and they will see zombie brains and people brains and blood and guts and gore and things, and so I'm like, yeah, not so great until they're a little bit older than three and six. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, they'll... They'll, they'll see zombie brains at some point in their life. It's just it's just a given. Yeah, you know, that's fine. Once they're, it, it's, you know, it's just you want it to be a little later. Yeah, when they're thirteen ish, maybe you know, it depends on the context of the zombie brains. Whichever game, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, I feel like there's one more thing that I've been playing, but I'm also not remembering. So I guess we'll just move on, unless you want to do our tabletop. Playing? What? What's your tabletop playing? Ooh, I got. I actually have something this week. I've been playing more Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Uh, we've been having fun with that. Uh, so the vast majority of deaths in our last Call of Cthulhu game were from um, eating gravel. Mm hmm. Uh, and it was just normal. Like, you don't want to eat gravel because you know it can kill you, like yeah. in real life. Uh huh. Uh. It was done as part of a ritual. We had a couple gunfights. We found some eldritch monsters. Uh, but I find it funny that the thing that killed us was, like, t two or three of us was just eating gravel. <laughs> you wouldn't think that, a, that would be a big party killer, would you? Yeah, and it was right at the end of the session, too. So, mm -hmm. so I, I'm like, that, I feel like this is what Lovecraft was driving at. Right. The universe doesn't care about you. Even if the Eldritch Monsters don't kill you, something totally mundane will. <laughs> nice. Alright, uh, the only tabletops I've played this week was our Pirates campaign, which I DM'd, 
And uh, you guys seem to have an interesting time with that. And I never got to tell you the story of why some of the wacky bullshit happened. Um, yeah, what was with the M&Ms? <laughs> so, uh, when I was designing this dungeon, basically I was like, okay, so the necromancer guy is, uh, you know, probably has some kind of minions that are helping him cast the spell. So, I, uh, I was trying to find a token on roll 20 for the necromancer, and I searched necromancer in the roll 20 uh, free tokens thing, and the tokens that came up were M&M guys and this dude that looked like he was made out of blue jello. And I was like, okay, these guys are in my campaign now. <laughs> Damn it, I think I just lost a bet with Nick. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I just was like, these tokens are too random for me to not use them, right? So <laughs> So I, I designed this whole thing, and then it was kind of funny, too, because I, I wanted a good token for the uh, Dwarven King, who is, like, their uh, uh, sacrifice that they're using to resurrect some evil guys, basically, is what their you guys found out that their spell was doing. Um, and so they had captured the Dwarven King, and they were going to sacrifice him as a ritual, and I was putting into, I, I put in like dwarf and dwarf king and a royal dwarf, you know, various search terms trying to find a good token for this dwarf in roll 20. And they were all crap because some sometimes that's just how the free ones work. You just don't get good free tokens on roll 20 sometimes. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Google Images and find something and upload it. And I uh, put in dwarf king into the Google image search and it randomly uh, auto-filled to Dwarf Kingfisher, which is a type of very small bird. And I was like, okay, I guess the Dwarf King is polymorphed into a Dwarf Kingfisher. Which also you guys deduced before you realized that it was actually the Dwarf King. You're like... I. Because uh, somebody, I think Owen made his knowledge nature check, and I'm like, that's a dwarf kingfisher. He's like, that's an oddly specific type of bird. <laughs> it, it was like, oh, it's a dwarf kingfisher, so it's got, like, some voodoo connection to the dwarf king, right? That's where my brain went. Right, yeah. Uh, but no, it was actually the dwarf king polymorphed into a dwarf kingfisher, and then you know, put into a birdcage so that he would... And I was like, actually, that's a kind of a neat little plug there that I can sort of use, that they turned him into a bird so that they could, you know, more easily manhandle him. Um, and then they killed the Dwarf King and uh, resurrected some evil guys. So oh, that's that's, that's what I want to do if I'm exploring an evil wizard's tower is run into the bird room and then you walk in and the birds wake up and they say, run away, run away while you still can. We used to be people. It's like some of them are actual birds. Right. So if, you, if you're an evil wizard, you'd polymorph people so they'd say that. And if you're not an evil wizard, you'd train birds to say that just so that people thought you were doing that to people. Mm-hmm. This is good vodka. I'm going to give it a... Let's go... Let's go... 15 good vodka, vodka. Mm, this is very good vodka have you had, See, I, I feel like you've maybe had this at my place sometime but maybe i guess you don't drink hard alcohol at my place very much no I usually not very have often. hard alcohol but usually if you have anything it'll be like a beer yeah but uh, so 
fun fact for someone who's on a drink to the past podcast i drink pretty rarely <laughs> mostly when i say hey have a beer it's a podcast yeah i'll, I'll <laughs> have i have a few beers sometimes right anywho want to get into the news and booze uh yeah all right so first option of news and booze is min min oh that's t- that's the other thing i've been playing is super smash brothers duh now i feel stupid uh so oh and and i i actually played a little bit of arms uh to hype myself up for this again which was kind of interesting because i booted up arms for the first time in a while and last time i booted up arms it was like the servers weren't like totally dead but it it would take a little while to get into a party and then like the only people playing were super hardcore people that would like totally just trounce me and i I had no chance as a filthy casual and now i feel like it's got like a new surge of popularity because min min's in smash and um now there's like noobs again and i'm like yay i'm not totally screwed online so that's been pretty that was pretty fun and then min min in super smash brothers is actually just a ton of fun uh have you got the dlc or do you intend to i do intend to get the dlc but i haven't touched smash in a while so i'm looking forward to playing all the new characters yeah um really the dlc has pretty much just been you know grand slam after grand slam they're all freaking amazing totally unique feeling characters min min plays just way differently than anybody else in smash um and it it feels like you know when i was imagining her i was imagining like oh maybe she'll do something you know like Richter and you know them with the with the long reach and I don't think it's quite as long reach as Richter and uh, Simon but it's pretty close and uh, oh boy does it hit harder when you're using her uh, she's got one of her arms you can switch between three different arms on one side uh, and when you're using her uh, uh, I forget what arm it's called but it's this giant yellow ball of electric doom and it it hits like a truck from like halfway across the battlefield it's amazing um, not halfway across. It depends on the battlefield. Some battlefield. And anyway, so it's a small stages, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So she's a ton of fun. Uh, the Spring Stadium stage is kind of boring. Um, it's not bad. Uh, but I don't know. It's like its gimmick isn't as usable as I thought it would be because there's like these three kind of spring platforms on it that you can use to jump really high occasionally but they're not always up so it's like sometimes you can use them to your advantage but most of the time they're like not up so it's like it almost feels like a battlefield with less platforms a lot of the time and then sometimes it's got a spring thing it's like okay it's kind of a weird stage not not a fan but it's it's fine whatever Okay. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm gonna go out of my way to avoid this stage, but I feel like it's the character design of Smash that sells you. But there's there's almost always like four or five stages that just suck ass to play, right? Or they got something awful about. Yeah, like, and uh, this one isn't like totally awful. Like the the one with the yellow devil. <laughs> it's just it's like or, people or get... the one with the. Uh, bird. The uh, Magicant with the yeah, uh, Birdman? Yeah, where it's like, if you get the Birdman, it's like, depending on wh- who your opponent is playing, like, 
Birdman is really surprisingly good against Ike. Ask me how I know as an Ike main. <laughs> like, and I can never get to him, too, because Ike is also slower than everybody else. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's a fine stage, uh, but, you know, nothing special compared to... But, I mean, you know, if you don't like it, there's 105 other stages to pick from or something. Whatever. I'll pay for the character. Uh, Worms Rumble was announced, coming late 2020 to PC, PS4, and PS5, and will have cross-play and up to 32-player online battles. And it's the first Worms game to be real-time! I'm interested to see how that plays, because I felt like the turn-based aspect of Worms was what gave it a lot of that feel. Yeah, it's always so. kind of been like a more tactical thing, so now I'm like, is it going to be like more run-and-gun feeling? The gameplay looks uh, about the same pace, which is kind of strange, because uh, it's moved to this. So maybe it's there's still some amount of tacticalness to it. I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, before you played it. Also, the last Worms game I played was Worms Armageddon on the Dreamcast. So that's been a little while. And Worms Armageddon is also one of the old classics. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic freaking game. So I've always been kind of like looking at this series and been like, ooh, I should get into Worms again, and then not doing it for some reason. Do you ever have Worms Armageddon for the Game Boy Color? No. It was actually a pretty good adaptation, hmm. despite the limited hardware. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I didn't even know it came out for Game Boy Color. So. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool, because, you know, coming from a... It was a pretty good, you know, console game, and, you know, to fit everything that it had in that game, even, you know, even though it's not a super advanced console anymore, obviously... You know, I feel like to fit all that it had on a Game Boy Color would still be pretty impressive. Because most of the time, if there was a game that came out on, like, console and handheld, it would be, like, the same name, but entirely different experiences. Like the, like, Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the difference between a game license and, uh... And, uh say like a movie license or some Ooh. other property license right all right so uh next piece of news and booze is bloodstained curse of the moon 2 now has a release date which is kind of cool because it only got announced last week and now we know it's releasing july 10th so that's next week ah let's snuck up on us <laughs> so i don't know if i'm gonna get that right away it'll probably not be very expensive so i'll think about it but i don't know um I, but i feel like i'm being presented with so many good games coming out so fast, and then I keep playing Dead by Daylight. <laughs> Ain't that how it goes? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I played the first one. It was great. Um, still haven't played uh, Ritual of the Night, so I'll need to get to that eventually, too. Um, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles remake will feature new voice acting, cross-play between PS4, Switch, and mobile devices, and has a free demo, which will have three dungeons in it. And if you have the demo and your buddy has the full game, then you can, like, go along with him in more dungeons. It, it didn't say all dungeons. It said, like, 30 dungeons or something, which I, I don't remember how many dungeons are in that game. 
And so I don't know if it's like you're just there in the dungeon and he does all the overworld exploring, but that's still kind of neat that you can just like jump in while your buddy, you know, is on there. Uh, and, and plus the crossplay is, is just kind of cool as well. Uh, you know, PS4 has been a little less good about crossplay, so it's nice to see uh, some of that. Uh, so PS4, I, Switch, and and mobile devices. Apparently, this is coming out on mobile. That's kind of interesting. I'm excited for the crossplay aspect of that because it's one of those games. I'm like, I think I'm gonna pick up the full thing. Uh -huh. I'm gonna crossplay this with friends. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know about the new voice acting. Uh, voice acting is always a mixed. Uh, it can be of a mixed quality, I guess. Yeah, is... uh, there was a few clips in the trailer, so I'd, I'd go check it out and see what you think at some point. Uh, I thought it sounded all pretty good. So I'm kind of excited to, you know, see full voice acted. Uh, I don't know if it's 100% full voice acted, but it looked like, uh, and from the dialogue, it sounded like some of the, you know, same scenes that I remember from the original game, but now with voice acting, so... I don't know if they're doing it for the whole game or what, but I think it's pretty cool that they're, you know, going the extra mile to make it a little bit more modern feeling, at the very least. And last piece of news and booze, a Fallout television series is now in production as an Amazon Prime exclusive. Didn't see that coming, did you? I didn't. Uh, I would hope that it's good. I would hope it respects the subject matter, mm -hmm. but Bethesda's kind of had a bad track record as of late. Yeah. Um, so, I guess it's up to the production company they choose whether or not this turns out to be good or a cash grab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Um, and I've heard people kind of using that same argument for Amazon in some of their original series of late. But, um, you know, I, I, it, to me, it's just like almost kind of strange to make a Fallout series because I'm like, you don't really have a main character of the Fallout series, so I guess you could do any number of things. I feel like there will be a lot of creative liberty there, uh, but it still does have to, like you said, respect their source material within that creative liberty. So that's kind of a hard line to ride, I think, as a writer. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes and, you know, whatever. I'll check it out when it comes out because I like TV. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what it actually ends up looking like. All right, and that's pretty much all we have for the news and booze today. So let's get on to our table topic. <gasps> but Sean, why is the table topic first? Oh, well, because it makes more sense to be first because the video game topic I picked... Uh, basically kind of as a topic to go with this table topic because the table topic I picked is picked because I'm going camping and that's why you're watching this on Thursday instead of Friday unless you're watching it later in the week in which case good keep watching it let's yeah watch our podcast share and subscribe for watching it right at different time uh, so yeah, um, one of these things I was thinking of, uh, relating to camping is, uh, you know, a lot of time in D&D &D games especially, but a lot of other RPGs as well, you know, between 
you know, area and town and dungeon and wherever they're going, players have the uh, ability to, you know, usually they're camping between places at some point, uh, and sometimes they're even taking rests within dungeons and stuff. And so I wanted to kind of talk about how to play balance a player's ability to take rests. Because I feel like different editions of D&D specifically do this really, really differently. And I feel like there's pros and cons to either way. And I, I want to kind of look at, uh, you know, if there's a better way to do it or if there's a sensical way uh, in some cases. Because in some cases it's like, okay, we're taking a long rest in, you know, the middle of this zombie-infested dungeon because we boarded up the doors it's like, does that really make sense? I don't know, you know. But at the same time, mechanically, you know, some kinds of games are built around this. That, you know, you have an encounter and then you take a rest. And then you have an encounter and then you take a rest. Um, and as well, uh, kind of uh, things to do, like, for rests on the road. Where it's like, uh, not necessarily in a dungeon or something, but players take a rest like all the time and uh should there be anything interesting happening there how much is too much so kind of a multifaceted topic there what i would yeah what i would start by saying is that it's more about the kind of campaign that's being run mm -hmm. and the kind of things going on in that campaign than it is about addition or about how any additions mechanics handles replenishment right. uh, so it's like if you're making a dungeon if you're making a series of dungeons that are designed to be oh you go through them and you do them all within one rest that's a totally different expectation than designing a giant mega dungeon where you might not even be able to get out for right. a while, so you have to rest in the dungeon. Um, yeah. So, it, so there's no one answer. So in that case, do you think that it's appropriate? Uh, I'm going to call out 5th edition here, because 5th edition here is very much based on encounter rest, encounter rest, encounter rest. That's, you know, it specifically made multiple kinds of rest mechanics to make it so that, like, you could basically regain a certain amount of abilities or, you know, get back on your feet, so to speak, uh, after basically every encounter with no downside. Is that wrong? So, or mm -hmm. is that something that could have been designed better to accommodate more kinds of campaigns? So, it's not wrong. Um, it is a mechanic that originated with 4th edition's encounter powers. Uh -huh. So you'd have your encounter powers and you'd have your daily powers. And mm -hmm. your encounter powers are supposed to refresh after a short rest like this and dailies, you know, after you slept for the night. Uh -huh. uh, what is the... What the odd thing is about it is that you do have a certain amount of it replenishes some of your resources. It doesn't replenish all of them. Uh, so it's more like a player-based painting mechanic. Since B 
because there isn't that hard encounter daily divide, a lot of your resource, you, you get back some, but not all resources, but a lot of those resources would have been considered daily in 4th edition. Uh, like mm -hmm. spells. and <clears throat> I lost my train of thought there. Right. Uh, so, so the, it's a player, it's kind of a, almost a fudging mechanic, so that if an encounter takes too much out of the player group for them to continue on to the next one, uh, they are allowed some replenishment in a situation where it would otherwise be untenable. I think that's how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. To me, it kind of feels like, though, that you're encouraged in the mechanics to take a rest like basically anytime there's no enemies around you you're like okay now we like we rest because that's what you do to correctly play this game and it feels to me like they've made a quote unquote correct way to play the game and i kind of object to having a correct and incorrect way to play tabletops in general uh there's always been within game rules there's always been kind of optimal play strategies hmm. where it's like in editions before this it was the 10 minute adventuring day it was if you're a high level wizard and you can teleport it makes a lot of sense for you to teleport your team into a fight get, kill everybody and teleport back and rest right um, and that's Something similar to that has been the case since even the very earliest editions of the game. That's mm -hmm. been kind of the optimal way to play. The short rest is a way of addressing that so players rest for an hour and don't get everything back. Right. As Which, opposed to I kind of get it, but at the same time, I also feel like this short rest mechanic makes it so that you're, like, like I said, first of all, resting all the time when, you know, that should not necessarily be feasible. I feel like that kind of breaks players out of the game. It, it removes immersion. It's like, okay, we've done the thing where we have to have our head in the game. Now we have to come out and, like, metagame to give ourselves an advantage for the rest of the dungeon. Uh, so I feel like that's kind of, you know, the back end of that double-edged sword. So that kind of gets back to back in the original edition of the game up into first edition AD&D um, and I think basic in those editions uh, that were kind of in between uh, there was a rest mechanic in the game, a short rest mechanic in the game mm -hmm. as well but it didn't work at all like the short rest mechanic in fifth edition it was a turn was ten minutes it was, there, it was a unit of time called a turn. And for yeah, every yeah. five turns you spent exploring, you had to spend a turn resting. So effectively, every mm. hour of exploration was five turns of exploration, one turn of rest. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt like... I, I think... I, I've never used that rule in my games, personally. Right. Uh, but I feel like that kind of is an, it makes sense as an abstract way of saying 
the things you're doing are tiring, so your people need to take a breather every ten minutes. Yeah, that kind of uh, makes sense. Um, but at the same time, if it's not explained that way in the new edition, does it harken back to the... It, it, you know, it can't harken back to the same thing for every player, obviously, because a lot of players have come in in this edition. Or me, I came in in 3035. You know, I've played those old editions where turns were 10 minutes, but I've never heard that particular rule before because, you know, the once or twice that I've played this edition, apparently my DMs didn't enforce it. Yeah, so. I, I don't think it was a rule that was commonly enforced because it, cause here's the kicker is, who cares? <laughs> right. What, why, would sh why would you... In it, it's an unnecessary call to reality. Yeah. It, it doesn't really add anything to the game. Mm -hmm. Other than maybe an extra turn for wandering monsters to show up. Right. Uh, whereas, I think 5th edition's short rest mechanic is supposed to be a positive instead of a negative uh, but I think you have a point about the 5th edition short rest mechanics kind of taking you out of the game. Mm -hmm. Or kind of taking you out of, not the game, but the imaginary space Yeah, that the game's supposed to represent, and that it makes you think about resource management. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of what happens in short rests is you can only replenish this, like, say, the once, or you can only replenish so much HP before you have to continue on, so you have to decide whether or not you want to take a short rest. I don't think it takes that much away. Mm. I don't think it's that big of a choice. It's the sort of thing I might give five or ten seconds of thought to. Right. Um, I'm not saying I hate it or anything. I just think it's, you know, coming from 3.0 and 3.5 and as my primary D&D, I, you know, I think it's a little jarring of a mechanic to try and get used to as a DM, because, uh, you know, I'm, y you know, it's like with players that have played 5th edition for a while, or players that are just good at kind of reading editions and figuring out, like you're saying, the optimal play, you know, it's like, I'm designing these dungeons, uh, you know, and encounters and stuff as though it were 3rd edition or something akin to that, where you're just gonna go through the whole dungeon, and then maybe you can rest probably when you go back to town, right? So, uh, and it, it's it in a couple of times it almost kind of broke my game that it's like, which which you know is a little bit to my fault as the you know DM that didn't do as much research as <laughs> I probably should have, admittedly. But so I think touching, it's worth you know at least addressing. You are touching on a point why. I'm not such a big fan of short rest mechanics, and I, I think it's in a way that you would might disagree with. Hmm. Uh, and it's that a short rest mechanic is a half measure in the sense that the short rest mechanic as implemented by 5th edition is a half measure in that it gives players only so much back. Hmm. So if you want to design... If, if you're the sort of person who cares about, like, balanced fights, I, I don't care give much of a shit myself, uh, it doesn't help you out that much because you don't know what level of resources the players will be at when they get past that first fight. 
mm-hmm. uh, even though you know they'll they'll be above a certain level. It's just a it's just a mild hedging mechanic. Mm-hmm. I think if they were implementing a rest mechanic, uh, what they should do if they cared about balanced fights and things like that, what they should do is they should say, "Here's the level of power we know a certain level group." of PCs is going to be at when they take a rest what, what however long that is just refill their resources to full and then rebalance everything around fighting a play, a group of players at full resources mm-hmm. or they do the thing where we don't care about encounter balance which is kind of what I prefer not caring about encounter balance we just give players the option to interact with encounters in a number of ways other than you know fighting or dying like running away and talking is running away talking should generally be options i think right yeah. uh, and then if they deplete resources and then they're not able to get out if they deplete themselves of resources and then they end up dying because they run into some new fight running out of resources or they get hit by wandering monsters when they're low on hp and spells uh it's their problem for dying. They should uh, they should have learned to manage their resources better. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if this thing should maybe just be limited to some extent, but I really kind of hate imposing limits on players too. Because uh, I'm like, th- when I was, you know, initially kind of reading 5th edition and kind of figuring out how this short rest, long rest mechanic works and why there's a difference, I was like, oh, so like... After you've cleared out most of a dungeon, you can take a short rest before the boss, right? It's kind of what I was thinking. Like, you know, I wasn't thinking to do this nearly as often as players can unless you specifically go out of your way to make a wandering monster appear every time that they could, right? That's that's I, like the only way to stop players from taking a rest, pretty and much. And I think the point behind things like wandering monsters which harkens back to an older edition is that whenever you did things like rest in the middle of a dungeon you were taking a risk that those things might show up it wasn't guaranteed so you had to weigh your options you had to weigh is it worth it to take a rest right now and maybe run into a fight we can't handle or should we bow out now or should we just press on with the limited resources we got because we Mm -hmm. think yeah, because that's a thing that as when I'm designing stuff, I very, very rarely put in any kind of wandering monster because I'm like, I pay too much attention to where the players at are at and what they're doing. So I always when I do add wandering monsters, I almost always forget that they're wandering monsters until I read the room that they start in in my notes. And I'm like, oh, it this was supposed to be wandering around the dungeon the entire time. Fuck. So. <laughs> I also find that you tend to design uh, design dungeons that are smaller than the kinds that typically add wandering monsters. Like I'd I'd say your dungeons are like like around thirty to fifteen rooms. Is that fair? Usually, is somewhere somewhere between there. Yeah, occasionally I'll go bigger than that, but not not all the time. Because I like my dungeons to basically fit a nice session or two with a fair fair bulk of difference between exploration, combat, and RP. And and the 
dungeons that Wandering Monsters were designed for had generally at least a hundred rooms, and mm-hmm. usually way, way more. Yeah. So you would go deep into them and then have to find your way, find or fight your way back out. Mm-hmm. There'd be things like uh, one-way doors where you could enter a certain section and then you could get stuck in that section and you'd have to find the way out of that section because you couldn't go back the way you came. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I've used and, some mechanics like that, but it's never been like as debilitating as it could be because of, you know... Yeah. Because of the size of my dungeons. Although, I did one time make a... In my Zelda campaign, I made a dungeon that was... Actually, pretty sizable, because that was, um, let's see, probably, I guess, let's see, I guess that would have been 64 rooms. Um, so that's, that's a decent-sized dungeon, and it was fairly complex, because basically it was four floors, and each floor rotated like a giant Rubik's Cube, uh, and you had to figure out, like, if you rotate this floor, then you can go up the stairs over here and go, you know, different puzzles like that. And then I, because it was a Zelda campaign, I put in wall masters that would grab you and put you in random parts of the dungeon. <laughs> and that was hilarious. So I then, remember that. Yeah, I actually really liked the design of that dungeon, too. Yeah, that was one of my more prouder dungeons. I was like, I like it. I'm a smart uh, guy. But to get back on topic for rests uh, yeah I, when I think of rests I think I tend to think of the resting mechanic or just resource recovery mm-hmm. uh, I tend to think less about the fiction entailed because how you handle rests is necessarily unlike the DMN is necessarily going to be more on the mechanical side unless you're the sort of person who says we're going to get like immersed i'm gonna be like did you guys remember to buy tents did you guys remember to buy like cookware and shit Mm -hmm. and there's a certain amount of that you just don't want to deal with that at the table you want to say yeah our characters remembered this obvious shit right yeah even though it would be like a real life thing to be like oh i don't have i forgot a pan we don't have anything to cook out of right yeah we cook over the fire what do you cook uh, the, uh, fuck. The rogue has trail rations. <laughs> I guess we share. Uh, yeah, so, uh, let's talk about those kind of campouts real quick. Uh, do you do anything with those kind of things? Do you ever do, like, because I feel like it's almost ubiquitous to include some kind of random encounter in the night, like, anytime players camp anywhere between any two towns. Uh, so, the way I handle that is I just say, you, each player has to buy, like, abstracted supplies. They cost this much, you need, and you go through this many supplies a day or a week. So, I think in my All People Carry a Light campaign, it's uh, the players go through one supply a week. Mm-hmm. So, at the top of the week... They run, they run out, and they so they can run low, and they can start to starve or like lack for shelter or whatever. Um, but I mostly don't, I don't manage the 
I, I don't get down into do you guys have enough firewood? It's you, you do unless yeah. you don't have enough supplies. In which case, I don't even do that much managing. I just yeah. assume that they like. I you know sometimes I'll be like okay so where are you sleeping you know be like and then sometimes it'll it'll bring the player in there like that like oh crap i forgot a bedroll so i guess i'm gonna sleep on the ground or the you know the elf will always sleep in the tree because they're an elf or you know whatever so fun stuff like that usually comes out um so i i enforce almost nothing about this kind of thing ever i'm just like it's kind of pointless to like I'm not going to make you fatigued at the end of the rest like I should, right? E- even if you say you sleep in your armor, like if you go out of your way to tell me you sleep in your armor, then I'll probably make you be fatigued or whatever. Yeah. But if you don't do that, like even if I have a random encounter in the middle of the night and you get up and your armor is inexplicably on because you forgot to recalculate your armor class, I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. Right? I threw combat at you. You gave me the armor class that is on your character sheet. You know, I'm very seldom going to, you know, so the way situationally I, I might be like, okay, your your armor is not on if it's an important encounter. But most of the time, those kind of encounters are like throwaway, like I just threw in a random encounter just because. And so the way I handle that is... Uh... I, I usually my campaigns in particular and all particularly in all people carry a light they have like periods of long overland travel between towns mm-hmm. destinations so it's just every night they rest um, there's a one in six chance they run into a one they have a wandering encounter of some kind and mm-hmm. is isn't necessarily it, it isn't necessarily hostile either it could be like merchants come upon the campsite for some reason right yeah i have that too kind of because when i do this kind of random encounter uh i just have a d100 table that i made that i just roll on and some of them are like combat oriented some of them are like you find some free treasure whatever you know uh and some of them are like you, you know just like mysterious random things that the players think have significance but they totally don't (laughs) <laughs> I love those kind of things. Um, yeah, but they're they're mostly there to do heavy things like that. Are mostly there to do heavy lifting for me, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, I rolled this random encounter. I, I have a little table of random wilderness encounters. A lot of them are people, mm-hmm. and then if they run into something on the road, it's doing like a particular thing. Uh, I might get some... I, I could get, like, a couple hours of play out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how... One thing that I kind of take into account when I'm doing this kind of thing is... Because uh, one of the questions I posed here was how much is too much when you're doing random encounters on rests or, or even just along the road. Um, and I feel like it's easy to like oh they're going between point a and point b something should happen right theoretically you should have something happen on the road so a lot of times i'll roll up a random encounter just if you're traveling anywhere but i feel like it doesn't necessarily have to be an important thing that happens on the road so sometimes i'll just be like you know what 
whatever. You get there, there's no problems. You, you know, you have your two-week journey or whatever. I just want to get on with the story of the campaign. I'm not going to individually go through every one of these 14 nights and roll the random encounter and all that, you know. So, uh, you were saying you do about one in six? Yeah, so I roll a d6. If the die comes up a one, I roll a random encounter. Okay, that's not a bad way of doing it. Because uh, I've always kind of wondered, you know, because I, I basically just do it like uh, if I want to fluff out the session a little bit because I'm not sure if I have enough prepared for a whole session, then that's about half of the time that I do a random encounter on the way to the dungeon. <laughs> and, and when I do this, it's not about fluffing out a session. It's just about basically testing preparedness. Right. And also, if you run into a bunch of pilgrims on the road... And they're trapped, and they're like fleeing from someone. You might, and that's just a result I rolled up. I was like, pilgrims, and it says they're fleeing. You might run into what they're fleeing from if you continue up, traveling up the road. Yeah, and then you can see who your players really are because do your players help these fleeing pilgrims or do they or murder, murder them activity. and give them up to the guys that they're chasing them for a reward? <laughs> you know. So that can lead to yeah. some interesting kind of things as well, yeah. I I did have the resource mechanic I was talking about work out to, to an interesting situation once when they mm. were traveling through some snow-packed mountains and they started running out of resources because the mm -hmm. journey took them longer than they thought it would. Right. Uh, so they were almost at the point of Donner Party uh, when they finally ran into some bandits one ambushed them, one, and took all of their food. Mm -hmm. That'd be kind of cool. I like that idea. Where you go up into the mountains, you run out of food, and then the players have to decide who to eat. Right, <laughs> yeah. That too. Oh, Moby Dick on you. Yeah. You don't even know what we're talking about. My wife's judging us when she can only hear half the conversation. I think that means we have to drink. I'm drinking. Alright, anything else to say on this topic here, Chris? Uh, well, we kind of, well, we covered a bunch of like adjacent topics related to resting. Um, like resource replenishment, how you handle it in the fiction, uh, mm -hmm like broader scale resource management including things like wandering monsters that are supposed to press on that yeah uh, i think any one of those would be worth a deeper dive at some point yeah but, maybe um i think we had an interesting kind of discussion about all of them though so yeah. that kind of works out um all right so shall we go to our video game topic sure all right So the video game topic today is the best video game simulations of outdoor adventuring. Because uh, this also happens a fair amount, but uh, it's not quite the same in a video game as it is in, like, uh, real life or in a tabletop. Because, uh, like, when you're in a video game, you don't have to sleep, you don't have to eat... You know, you don't you don't pay attention to any of that. You know, there uh, very very rarely is there a game that makes you do that kind of resource management. 
Um, you know, maybe you'll have a hunger meter occasionally in some games, but that's that's pretty much it. So, I ha- immediately have a game mm-hmm. uh, that might be somewhat unusual, mm-hmm. and that would be it, it, it and the game it's an homage to, Sexy Hiking. Uh, Bennett Foddy's Getting Over It, hmm. which is a game about climbing a mountain and is exactly as frustrating, if not more frustrating, than climbing is in real life. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done... I've done a little bit of climbing. I haven't done a lot of climbing. I don't know how much climbing you've done, Sean. Um, I went to the rock climbing gym a fair amount when I was, like, a teenager, and that was about it. I haven't, like, ever climbed a serious rock face. Yeah. Did you ever try to do those uh, overhang climbs yeah. where it was trying to go upside down on you? No. Um, I was always sort of interested, but really just, it was always kind of a passive interest, and I didn't, you know, train nearly enough to actually get good enough to do anything even close to that. So, and then, you know, I became of drinking age, and now I'm just too fat. Uh, So, I think, uh, I think that game captures a lot of the feel of frustration and losing ground and just not being able to get past a certain point that you don't really get in other games. Like in Breath of the Wild, it has mm-hmm. a climbing mechanic where unless it's raining, you can just climb whatever until yeah. you run out of stamina. And that's that's good for like a video game, yeah. but that's not like an accurate representation of what that feels like in real life. Right, yeah. And just as a side note on this topic, this can mean either thing. Either it gives you an accurate representation, or it gives you a fun representation. Yeah. Because I think both in a video game are equally valid. And I'll take fun representation any day, please. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. I'm like, if I could do this stuff in real life, why wouldn't I just do it in real life instead of playing video games? uh, I have... I had a weird feeling that you were going to bring up Death Stranding, but you haven't. So if that was something you were going to bring up, now would be the time. Death Stranding is a good example um, for outdoor adventuring. Because, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing that you should say, that I, I didn't actually think of that until you <laughs> brought it up. Because actually I was going to say my thing that I was going to say was The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2. Uh, because they've got this kind of blended, very organically blended going inside and outside of buildings through kind of the entire game and uh, further into the apocalypse kind of thing that happens in the setting of the games. Uh, It's kind of cool because most apocalypse games are like just everything's gray and dead. But in these games, like nature takes over everything. So like when you're just you know coming up to uh you know an old you know house or shack or something you know it's not just caved in and destroyed and decrepit like in most apocalypse games it's you know overrun by trees and moss and things and there's like nature is like slowly reclaiming the earth uh as 
you know, the apocalypse goes on. So I, I really thought that was just a really cool touch that is in both games pretty well, um, just when you're adventuring uh, in that. But Death Stranding is... Um, yeah, just being a walking simulator, that's a, that's a pretty good one, yeah. But I don't know... It, I don't know, because it's, it's a weird representation of it, you know? Because it's not necessarily realistic. It has realistic aspects. Um, like, you have a, a stamina meter that basically, like, when it runs out, you will fall unconscious and, you know, you will have to rest. And, um, you know, it's got fairly realistic physics and you have to balance yourself with all this crazy-ass cargo and stuff. So... Uh, it's a certain kind of game that kind of fits into this uh, idea here, but really in a different way than any other game that you could ever think of. So Death Stranding is a good good example, though, yeah. Really just what draws me to that game, though, is more like... It's kind of a combination of mechanics and word, world building, because it's like... It's not that you're exploring as... Well, it, you are... It's, it's a weird thing. It's very hard to describe Death Stranding, like, at all. Like, I've played that game, and now I'm just like, how do I even, you know, get into it again? I need... Now I want to replay that game. Damn it, Chris. <laughs> uh, so, I was thinking mostly of uh, what the... Uh, carrying physics looks like looked like but you had mm -hmm. a lot of a lot more to say than that uh yeah. one more what and, and now i'm thinking there, there's a lot of games that depict like a video game eyes outdoor survival kind of situation uh -huh. uh but there's fewer that kind of try and be real nitty-gritty about it mm-hmm uh, and I think Dwarf Fortress is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Fortress Adventure Mode is pretty good at doing that, except for the boogeymen, which, I mean, there aren't real-life boogeymen that show up in the middle of the night and try to peck out your eyeballs. So, you know. Uh, but that's a game where it's just, you can explore on foot in any direction for a long time and go over hills and, like, try and find food. Mm -hmm. You have to eat and drink about the same at the same rate uh you'd have to eat and drink in real life pretty much okay uh yeah another game that i was going to shout out that you mentioned briefly was breath of the wild um and i'm going to kind of compare that back to death stranding and why i think it's so hard to kind of talk about how Death Stranding works with this, because Breath of the Wild is really, has a lot more interactivity with the environment. You can blow up trees with your bombs, you can knock them down to gather wood, you can, you know, find tons of fruits and, you know, indigenous bugs and things to make into stuff, and you're really interacting with all that nature. And in Death Stranding, you're not really interacting with the nature, you're interacting with the terrain. Because Death Stranding and all of its mechanics are based 
more or less on balancing your giant ass backpack full of shit. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that I think is kind of why it's hard to, you know, put it into words how you're interacting with the environment because you're not really interacting with the environment as much as you are the terrain. You, you know, you're going over rocks, you're going up hills, down hills. Each of those are, you know, situationally very difficult with a giant-ass backpack full of stuff. Um, you know, you, sometimes you'll have to go over a canyon or, you know, figure out how to get around it somehow. Um, and that's kind of all how Death Stranding works. So it's, uh, I think, after I thought about it for a second, that's really what makes Death Stranding a good outdoor adventuring simulator which is exactly the opposite thing that Breath of the Wild does. But at the same time, they both kind of do the same thing because Breath of the Wild has a lot of terrain interaction as well, just in a different way with the climbing mechanic, like we were saying, where you're just kind of, you know, you go up and you can climb anything until your stamina meter runs out, and that's basically the only limit on where you can and cannot go in the world. And... So, in Breath of the Wild's mechanics are a lot more optimized for, well, you know, fun. Yeah, they're they're, they're less. They're meant to be less frustrating. Mm -hmm. they um, and I think a lot of the other they they don't include things like hunger and thirst meters, which I think a lot of the more hardcore games like Ark Survival Evolved. Mm -hmm. Where Ark has a hunger meter and a thirst meter, and you can get too hot or too cold, and that can deplete your water or can deplete your food and eventually mm -hmm. start damaging your health. Yeah, um, and you get like little bits of that in Breath of the Wild, like when you're in a super hot climate and or a super cold climate, and you take a little bit of damage at the, you know, unless you have a buff food or special clothing. Which, yeah. So it's got, like, those aspects in a really, really light version. Yeah, uh, one more game I kind of wanted to mention was Minecraft. Because uh, it really feels... One of the things that I like most about Minecraft, you know, because I, I like it fairly well from just a, you know, build whatever the hell you want kind of aspect but I also really like Minecraft because it it feels like there's a purpose to building whatever you want because you know night comes out and then there's you know zombies and monsters and all sorts of things and you know they'll come out and get you so you gotta you know go in and dig while you're doing it and it in a weird way it feels like this very immersive survival adventure thing uh, even though it's like not very serious about it you know uh, it's, it's kind of a weird, you know, combination of, uh, this survival adventure as well as just the open, explore, do whatever you want, build whatever you want. So, that's good shout out to Minecraft. Yeah, Minecraft, I think, caught on because it had a little bit of those survival mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, but it was just enough to make it fun. It wasn't yeah. excessive. It's it not wasn't. overbearing about it, and it's like once you understand the mechanic, it's not that difficult to 
avoid getting totally screwed. And I you feel know? like, in reality, survival would be kind of an overbearing thing. Yeah. Being outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like you can just punch down a tree and make it into a shovel. No. You'd have to <laughs> that the amount of tech development you'd have to do to get to shovel is more than you or I could do if we were dumped out in the middle of the woods with nothing. Yeah. Like, right now I got my K-bar on my hip and that's my only saving grace. <laughs> uh, so do we have... I don't know if you said all you had to say on this topic, but... Yeah, I think I did. So that's that's uh, pretty much that, I guess. Um, so any final thoughts on that? Any what? Final thoughts on that? Um, not specifically. I think this can mean, you know, this is a little bit of an open-ended topic because, you know, like we said, it's like, are you going for realism in outdoor survival or are you going in fun in outdoor adventuring, you know? So there's a lot of kind of ways we can take it, and I think we took it, you know, most of the same ways there uh you know i think some games could do it more interestingly than when you're on the overworld you can set up a tent to restore your hup and mup yeah you there's a lot more interesting ways to go about it it's and i don't know if it's a challenge to balance a outdoor mechanic survival mechanic like that uh, between fun and overbearing. Mm-hmm. And lots of games that end up on the overbearing side. Yeah, because, like, the only thing I find overbearing about Minecraft is the hunger meter, because, like, it's very difficult to find food in that game <laughs> uh, the way that I play it, right? Because I'm like, go dig a hole, dig a hole, dig a hole, go take all my stuff that I dig, and I build up a giant thing. And that's kind of, and I kind of repeat that process over and over and over and over again until I've got, you know, a pretty cool building and, you know, enough swords to last until I find another cool place to build something interesting or something like that. And yeah. Yeah. I always forget about the hunger mechanic until I'm on, like, you know, uh, two out of your ten little hunger meter boxes or whatever and then i'm like scrambling around like where's a pig is there a pig anywhere ah there's a monster no monster not monsters do not help and then i usually die before i find any food and i i feel like you're you need to set up a farm that's why you should play animal crossing apparently that's why i should play animal crossing (laughs) no animal crossing is a totally different thing yeah all right Uh, anyways uh any do you have any last thoughts? Uh, I think that was it for me. All right. In that case, we'll move to our final segment of the podcast where we talk about weird random bullshit until somebody says something really, really awkward and I cut the podcast off. Although I'm now that's sure. kind of not... Is it kind of a spoiler to say that? Or or should I... Should I, like, leave it a surprise? We could also no, shill ourselves. Surprises are the best. So, I'm Sean Michael Patrick Thompson. You can catch me over on Twitter at SpamOmanoSpam. You can find me on TwoGuysPlayingZelda.com. I have all sorts of articles and stuff there, and eventually I will probably write something else, but it's been a little while. 
And you can, of course, follow our YouTube channel, uh, which I am doing some gaming stuff and maybe some music stuff, apparently, sometimes, depending on, you know, when I have time to record and stuff. So check that out. Uh, we are also available on YouTube, Podbean, and Apple Podcasts. So wherever you like your podcasts, as long as it's one of those three things, we're there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Chris, no last name, Audette. Uh, I'll, I sh will show myself next week, so I don't have to this week. All right, fair enough. And I'm going camping with Nick, so uh, shill his stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll shill his stuff next week as well. Okay. Sorry, Nick. I tried. A little. Anywho. You know what's really weird? Um, going back to Halo 1 and 2 is not being able to pause in cutscenes. Because that's like a normal thing in games now. It is very odd. Yeah, uh, did I, they just skip the cutscene or... Well, you, I push start and it usually in games of that generation, it's like it gives you the option to skip. But you can't just pause the cutscene like you can in, like, pretty much every modern game, right? So, I'm not sure exactly what... I didn't really notice being able to pause in cutscene becoming a standard thing, but now it is, and now it's somewhat frustrating when I can't do it. When I'm like, you know, kid needs something, but Master Chief is talking. <laughs> you... That's something they could have added to the remaster. What well, I yeah, remember I'm like, about... I feel like a bad parent because I'm paying attention to Master Chief instead of my child, but I can get to my child in two seconds, you know. What it's I like, remember... It's a dichotomy. What do I do? What I remember about not being able to pause a cutscene is there was an over an hour-long cutscene at the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, mm -hmm. right before the final boss fight, uh, and I needed to be away from it but I couldn't uh, because you couldn't pause there was no pause button you just had to sit there for an hour and watch this cutscene uh -huh. so that was was it insane. unskippable so if you died you have to watch the hour again no it was skippable okay <laughs> that would have sucked yeah. <laughs> I'd be like no I'm not watching this cutscene again <laughs> Never beat Metal Gear Solid because I didn't want to watch the cutscene again. <laughs> that I I don't know what they were thinking when they did that. That is a really weird choice, yeah. Because uh, like sometimes I'm okay with games with long cutscenes. Uh, it it can work, but an hour is like egregious. An hour cutscene, unpausable. I, uh... Like, Death Stranding I had several that through... were 10 to 15 minutes. I shouldn't have to sit through a positive. movie to play my game. Right, yeah. And that that's not that much of an exaggeration. Yeah. There are movies that are, you know, in the hour to hour and a half range. So, And that's why Konami fired Hideo Kojima. I'm just kidding. It's because they're dicks. Right, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, um, yeah. Um, 
Beer is good. I agree. Smash Bros is good. I also agree. These whiskey stones, like, did the job as well as any other whiskey stones. So my assessment was correct. These Kingsman brand whiskey stones are just as good as regular whiskey stones. Do you really need that many whiskey stones? Um, I mean, usually in this glass I put in two. So I just brought in the whole bag. So I was like, eh, I got it over here. Might as well use all four. So It's not like they get infected getting right, covered yeah. in alcohol all the time. Right. <laughs> They're constantly covered in disinfectant. Yeah. Disinfectant. It's good for your insides. It's if I drink enough of this, I'll probably be immune to, like, all sorts of disease and virus, right? If I drink enough of that, it'll disinfect my uh, the water inside me by making me throw it all up. Impressive. Beer. I still don't know what this aftertaste is. It's like it's familiar, reminiscent, like... It's on the tip of my tongue, literally, because that's where I taste things. On my tongue. Do you taste things on your tongue, Chris? Yes. Also with my butthole. 